0: Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Award-winning author Daniel Dennett is one of the best-known living philosophers of today. Shooting to notoriety as one of the four horsemen in the New Atheist Movement, he has written with acclaim on topics ranging from free will consciousness and the self. But how does he reconcile being an unbeliever with believing so vehemently that there is a right and wrong answer to the big questions? On today's episode of Philosophy for Our Times, we find out how Daniel's life shaped his ideas in this exclusive interview with neuroscientist Daniel Glazer.
1: From my perspective now, it looks as if I I had a few really good ideas back in my thesis, and then I just turned the crank.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Daniel Dennett and Daniel Glazer.
2: I remember when I was at school, um, uh, one of my uh, uh, school friends, um, his father, uh, had been the head of MI6, which is the secret service in in the UK and his father had died while we were at school, and I uh, remember asking him uh, what it had been like growing up with having a father who was the head of MI6, and he said, Dan, the first I knew that my father had been the head of MI6 was when I read it in his obituary in the Times, Uh, which I found rather disappointing, uh, although actually I suppose quite impressive in terms of the secrecy that his father maintained. Uh, it, it, It is a matter of record that your father had been, I believe, a secret agent, if that's the term. Did you know that as a child was an important part of your vision of him?
1: Not until he died.
2: Very interesting.
1: That's when it came out. And uh, my sister's just written a wonderful book about it and uh, and about the great game for oil in the the Arab world, which is something that he was very much involved in studying and uh, uh, trying to help the... uh, Uh, Americans figure out what to do about the uh, forces that were jumping in after World War II to uh, try to control the oil.
2: I mean, I'd make a terrible spy because I would tell everyone about it, you know, I mean, from day one. I don't know whether you'd be any good, Dan. Perhaps you are and you haven't told anyone. I I don't think I would. Um, I I like to tell stories too much. (laughs) And can you remember what it felt like when you discovered that something so important about him had been hidden from you, uh, you know, as a child. I'm I'm curious about this notion of somebody important in your life being completely different from how they seemed, because this outside-inside piece, I guess, is quite important in your work. Do you recall what that felt like?
1: Not really. Um, I was uh, actually involved without realizing it in some things. Uh, He would take me along sometimes in his... Jeep, which I loved with a passion. I was only five years old, four years old, but he'd take me along because that turns out to be a great cover. <laughs> you take a child, nobody thinks you're a spy if you got a four-year-old kid with you. Uh, so um, I, I knew, I thought of him as just a great adventurer, and he seemed to know everything, and spoke fluent Arabic, and uh, no, it, it, it seemed to make sense. Of of course, he was a spy. Wasn't he everything? <laughs> <laughs>
2: nice. And as a child, I mean, again, famously, you know, the early, the, the first philosophical question that every child asks is, is your read the same as my red?" Uh, do you recall, uh, you know, as it were early philosophical inquiries or do people re- report that of you as a child?
1: Um, both. Yes. Um, uh, I was, without knowing what philosophy was, I was, Asking myself philosophical questions, discovering solipsism, <laughs> playing around with that for a while, um, you know. Um, uh, and uh, apparently, I did that so much that at summer camp, when I was a camper at summer camp, one of the counselors said, "That I, Danny, you're a philosopher." And I didn't know what that was, but the idea you could actually make a living doing this sounded great.
2: But seriously, every time I do um, public talks uh, with people who study synesthesia, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you notice about a quarter of the way in, someone in the audience kind of goes, what? And, you know, in large audiences, there's almost always two or three people who've had it since they were born and until that day did not realize it was a thing. Right. This this sort of self-actualization as a synesthete comes to them uh, in the space. Did that self-actualization or that description of you by someone else as a philosopher was that, was that there then from a very early age for you? That's how you regarded yourself, or did you struggle with that designation from a young age? Well,
1: I, well, I was fascinated by that idea when it was suggested to me that <laughs> this was a, a job opportunity, but um, I didn't think about it much. Um, I thought I was going to be uh, a teacher, and I thought I was maybe going to be an artist and maybe going to be a musician, and I... I discovered that there were better artists and better musicians out there, no matter how hard I tried. And it seemed that philosophy was the thing I could do uh, better than most of the people that I encountered.
2: And does that mean that you followed, as it were, a a self-determined path? I mean, that that you were, again, you give a a, a rational account of it, that you were evaluating your abilities in these different domains. You found there was one you're preeminent in and therefore set off down that road. Is that a do you think that's a fair description? It's fair with hindsight. but would, it, would you have recognized it, do you think, as your career progressed at the time? Um,
1: uh, no, it was a matter of, of you know, falling off cliffs. <laughs> I was going to be an artist, uh, and then I met a really wonderful artist, my age, who we, we would sit in our freshman dorm room uh, uh, at Wesleyan University and sketch each other. And I would... I thought I was pretty darn good draftsman. And I would do a sketch of Stan and, you know, take me 10 or 15 minutes. And, yeah, you sure could tell that was Stan. And then it would be Stan's turn and he goes like this. And there I was. I mean, this vivid, elegant line. And I thought, oh, I didn't know anybody could do that. <laughs> I just didn't know. That was a human possibility, and okay, I guess maybe I'm not an artist, at least I'm not that kind of artist. Same thing happened with music. <laughs> so so this, uh, philosophy
2: was the last man standing? Yeah. <laughs> in that sense, And I suppose, I mean, we, in that simple sort of trajectory of illumination of other things, uh, again, it does, you do still paint a picture of a smooth arc, I wonder whether you feel similarly about as it were the development of your philosophical ideas. It's been, it's relatively easy when one reads of your progression and I've read your work uh, over many years to think of it as being uh, a fairly continuous path. It's not that your views are fixed, but uh, do, do you, with hindsight see yourself as having had major shifts of your view or do you recognize the approach you're taking as the one that you had when you set out?
1: No, I'm very much the latter. I, um, uh From my perspective now it looks as if I I had a few really good ideas back in my thesis, and then I just turned the crank and all of this stuff it's just it's just I just happened to get a really good thread to pull on <laughs> and and uh, it's been uh, to switch uh, images here it's been bearing fruit ever since it was, it was the idea of uh, learning as evolution in the brain. And uh, uh, the idea that uh, intentionality, aboutness, was a functional property that had to be understood in terms of, ultimately, of evolution, uh, and that the rationality of a, of an agent was presupposed use of mental language, and that's that's where the uh, that's where the uh, pieces fit together, and they just kept adding
2: up and adding up. And do, if, again, if, so, so, so it, it seems reasonable to ask this question given that you, be, you feel that the idea began roughly as it has maintained. Did you have then a sense of the origin of that thesis in your mind, if it was as early as your PhD thesis? Uh, it's a time, at least in my experience, of, of swirling ideas and of this huge need to pare away at all of the things you're interested in until you find something small enough to hope to fit into, you know, three or five years of a the thesis. But did you have a sense of the origins of this thinking, or just did it seem obviously right to you from the beginning? Um, part of it seemed obviously right,
1: and then for years, a lot of it seemed probably wrong, and it was very scary. Um, that is when I was still a graduate student, and when I was a you know, an early assistant professor. Uh, no, I remember vividly, I was sitting on the floor in our flat in Oxford, uh, and a friend of mine was sketching what a neuron was, and what a... I didn't know anything about brains, and uh, how they attached the, the, uh, the dendritic uh, endpoints and the axons, and I thought about it, and all of a sudden it just hit me. Oh, a network of those could learn if there was a if there was a selection mechanism. If you could tune it, and it could be self-tuning, and you could get rid of the teacher. And and that just hit me, and it's hit many people for sure. It was yeah,
2: noisily rediscovered by many
1: version of the idea itself. So it is it is a it's a great great idea. It's very simple and it's very easy to go wrong with, but. That hit me like a ton of bricks right then and there, but I certainly had my doubts about it and about all my other ideas uh, over the years.
2: But just to be very precise, I think the genesis of ideas is often interesting, especially to people you know outside of a field. I guess you could imagine at least three different possibilities that are conventional. One is that you read something somewhere it seems intuitively right and you become a defender of it. The second is the kind of classical serendipitous thing where it comes to you on the tennis court or you know in a dream. Um, but, but your account is actually much more straightforward, which is that you were examining the problem and the solution came to you and that was what you sort of stuck with. Would that be fair?
1: Well, except that I wasn't really examining the problem. I, I, my friend was a, was a medical student at Oxford. And I had had this, in retrospect, daft argument with some of the fellow graduate students in philosophy, uh, uh, somebody had raised the issue of what happens when your arm goes asleep, you know, and you've got this alien arm that hits you in the face or something. And, and what, 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 what how on earth to describe that? And I immediately started thinking, well, I don't know, but, you know, there's nerves or maybe the nerves get sort of shut down. And, and they laughed at me as if, no, no, this is a philosophical question. <laughs> well it's not a philosophical <laughs> question it's a scientific question i want to know the answer and i went running off uh well before i went running off to the medical library i just that very evening i think i, I sat down on uh in my on the floor of the flat with my friend who had a uh, had a paper and said what's the brain made of I didn't know. And he drew the neurons and then, oh my gosh. So I wasn't trying to solve the problem of learning. I just wanted to know what the parts of the brain were.
2: And can I check with you, Dan? I mean, so, you know, Pat Churchland, uh, you know, famously is is, is thought to have coined the phrase neurophilosopher. And my understanding, my sense is certainly from the introduction that you... uh, Identify, we can say, in the modern world, identity politics. You identify as a as a neuroscientist, as, as a philosopher. I'm sorry, and consider yourself an autodidact in these other domains. I mean, to what extent is it possible, do you think, to to make that kind of declaration? Are, are, how how are you not a neurophilosopher, or perhaps you are one? I am one, um,
1: uh, but Pat's, Pat knows a lot more neuroscience than I do. I mean, down in the trenches, uh, neuroscience, although. I'm happy to say I I know quite a bit, but when I came along, when I first started looking at this, I was as near as I can tell all by myself. There were no other philosophers that were interested in the brain at all, and my dissertation was regarded as a sort of really eccentric production. now, Now there's neurophilosophers who know so much more from the get-go than I did. Uh, it's really been gratifying.
2: I guess one, one almost alternative um, course of the arc of your life that might have happened, and I wonder if you believe this is possible, you said that you came up with this idea and essentially that you've been defending it with some doubts since. Could you imagine uh, a case where somebody would come up with an argument or some evidence which would convince you that it was wrong and you'd have to find another one?
1: oh, I can imagine that, yes, and I often have.
2: Uh, but, but again, you were describing it as having been a consistent view that you'd had since the thesis, which suggests that no one has, as it were, defeated it or, or given you... Uh,
1: no, 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 nobody's come
2: close. And of course, my confidence grows
1: because an awful lot of very smart people have disagreed with me. And I've yet to meet one who whose objections I don't think I can... Readily handle. I think I, as it were. I think more important than handling the objection is diagnosing why the person thinks the way they think. And
2: uh, that must be really maddening for the people that you speak to. I remember. I remember going to the the world the inaugural conference of the International Society for Neuropsychoanalysis, and and the first couple of days were the sort of neuroscientists um, uh, laying down the law, and then uh, you know the second or third day, some of the analysts said, well, let, let, you know, maybe we should do some work with you guys to, to examine you know, where, where this certainty that you're right comes from. We could look at your pasts and, and see about your childhoods because you clearly hold this belief that neuroscience un- explains everything very deeply. And the neuroscientists were like, yeah, right, we can do that just about the time you let me open up your head and stick an electrode in it. You know? so do, do people not find your approach of diagnosing the, the, the pathology which gives rise to their uh, not believing you irritating?
1: Well, there's a big difference. I don't I don't diagnose it a la psychoanalysis. Um, I diagnose it a la philosophy. I say, here's the mistaken reasoning that I think you're falling for, or here's here's an intuition that you're putting too much faith in, and you should just try to bracket your conviction that that intuition is true. Try it. You may find you can succeed. I, I don't have to, I don't have to take that intuition on. And I think that for instance, David Chalmers uh, of the hard problem. And uh, at one point, David said to me, um, well, look, Dan, I know your arguments and I I know that I don't have any, any really good rebuttal to them, but your arguments are just, they're just never, they're, you're never going to convince me that my that my intuition here is wrong. I said, have you considered a change in diet? He <laughs> didn't appreciate
2: it.
1: He'd nice. asked for it in a way.
2: But, you know, I mean, so I'm not speaking of eliminativism as such, although we could come back to it, but, you know, Paul Churchland, who's married to Pat Churchland, has this phrase where he says that um, belief-desire talks, so this notion of folk psychology that... Uh, you know, we're driven by beliefs and intuitions and desires and and so on, uh, will come to be replaced first in the laboratory, then in the clinic, and finally in the marketplace. And I wonder whether you, uh, you know, this idea, as it were, of world domination of an idea, and arguably you could say that that has sort of happened with Freudian ideas. You know, they've become part of culture. You know, we speak of denial. Mm -hmm. A country can, you know, uh, have an unconscious belief that's on. Do, Do you feel in some way that as well as convincing philosophers of the rightness of your ideas, that you're on some sort of campaign to, to have ordinary folks see the world and themselves indeed the way that you do? Yes, but but in a way, just the
1: opposite of Paul Churchland. I've been debating this with Paul for ever since I, I knew him. Uh, because of course, I want to say that uh, uh, belief, desire, talk, the intentional stance, folk psychology is not going to go away because it's so darn useful it's such a perspicuous oversimplification of the facts that it is useful it is pragmatically useful in a way that no neuroscientific talk is ever going to be and in fact i I would put it stronger and say we're going the other way around and uh um, i've been working with my uh young colleague michael levin at uh, tufts and we're we're arguing that um uh belief-desire talk goes all the way down to individual cells. And that if you really want to make sense of development, you have to take seriously the idea that cells want to do certain things. They have agendas and they know things. And if you, if you can trick them so that they think they're one place when they're not, then you can get all sorts of anomalies of development, so, um, uh, we're argu- arguing for the, not just the utility, I mean, the very deep utility of using the folk psychological shortcuts to develop hypotheses about what's going on.
2: Interesting. Although the utility that you're describing there, I mean, it was very, it's, it's very compelling. And I suppose it's a bit like Aaron Sloman's engineering stance, you know, why, you know, why would you build it that way being another one? But I wonder also whether there's a deeper utility. I was reading about... Bruno Latour, for example, who, you know, has, has sort of become a little alarmed at how some of his earlier ideas of postmodern sort of social constructivist approach to philosophy of science have become co-opted by climate deniers and, and anti-vaxxers, and has, has become alarmed at how uh, some of the philosophical ideas he was espousing have become unuseful, damaging, dangerous in the wild. Again, I'm just wondering whether you sense a political or social or cultural significance to the ideas that you're advocating as if they would be useful, as it were, to make the world a happier place or, or, or indeed to keep us alive on the planet as a species for longer.
1: I'm really glad you raised that because I think, I think Bruno Latour Tour is, is right to be concerned. Um, uh, nobody ever uh, tried to sell uh, malpractice insurance to a philosopher. Uh, but but we, we can really do some damage if some of our wilder ideas catch on with the public. We never think about, as it were, environmental impact of our ideas, and we should. Um, and look, if we take the field seriously, we should think about the environmental impact of our ideas. And I've thought about it. Quite a lot. I've thought about you know what if I'm wrong about this and what how could these ideas be misused? And devoted quite a lot of time to trying to prevent their their misuse. But it's it's an ongoing battle because people do want to uh, run off into the
2: distance with bad versions of of one's ideas sometimes. And it's but again you. You remain convinced that the effect of your ideas on the world is positive. I mean, again, it, it, I'm sort of always trying to find, you know, imagine things that would have made you change course. Uh, yeah. Would would you would you promote them differently if you started to have the sense that they were damaging? Well,
1: um, I remember that John Brockman one year his question was, "What's your most dangerous idea uh, for everybody, not just for me?" And I said, "Well, my most dangerous idea, I wouldn't tell you." Uh. <laughs> <laughs> nor should any of us, uh, for that very reason. Uh, certainly I can imagine, I can imagine ideas that if I thought they were true, I'd button my lip. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell them. I don't think, I don't think truth trumps everything, but my gosh, truth is awfully good. And we, the, the, uh, the disrespect, the the leftover erosion of postmodernism, where it's all just conversation and nothing is really true, it's all just... I, I find that that's intellectual vandalism, and I want to fight that as hard as I can. No, the truth matters. Uh, but sometimes you should button your lip. There are things... Think about your own case. Is there anything that's true about you that you just assume that be public? Of course, lots of things.
2: we <laughs> um, thinking, yes. Um, uh, but as a philosopher, you shouldn't have such considerations in mind, right? I mean, the, 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 the truth of what you discover should be uh, brought to light, uh, no matter what its consequences, surely.
1: Well, now hang on.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, Nietzsche was a philosopher. And
1: apparently, he, when he first had his idea of the, re, the eternal recurrence, he thought maybe. I think he even contemplated suicide rather than telling the world because he thought it would be a, you know, a, a, a sort of catastrophic revelation that the world couldn't recover from. So I, I think that philosophers, I really think philosophers should. Recognize that Although when we play in our playrooms with our colleagues, anything goes, and there's there's no hypothesis that is off limits. None. But we should remember that uh, it's just as it's a, it's a good thing that you know what happens in philosophy stays in philosophy for the most part.
2: When I asked you before in the green room, uh, uh, which was as blue as this one, actually, weirdly, uh, if there was a book you're promoting, I I held this up, which is this really lovely book you've written introduction to called L. The Humanist. And I I wanted to talk to you briefly, you know, both about religion and atheism and and children. I mean, I, I wonder if you can mention, you know, essentially how you came to be writing an introduction to a book by a nine year old, but also more interestingly, perhaps, or perhaps less, um, you know, the beliefs and the self-images that you have, are they, is it easier, do you think, to acquire them for children? Perhaps it's it's not worth trying to convince adults. You should be uh, trying to make sure that young people encounter their your ideas before they are formed, and then they will live ideas, live lives that are more consistent with your beliefs than if you try to approach them as adults.
1: Well, I think that um, Richard Dawkins is right when he suggests that uh, Enforcing religious education on small children and and hiding the other world's religions from them is is a, a form of, of intellectual child abuse. It's like not letting them learn to read or write. It's like preventing them, forbidding them to learn arithmetic.
2: Uh, um, but are you a proselytizing atheist in that sense?
1: Proselytizing, um, in a sense, I think. I think that the world is ready to grow up and set aside the sorts of religion that are irrational and that honor irrationality of one form or another. I think, I think we're ready to grow up. And most religions have branches which do just that. And if that's, if that's what religion was, it would be no problem because it would be, It would be ceremony and tradition, and uh, but the doctrines would be understood to be myths, metaphors, uh, fantasies, and and uh, that would be fine.
2: Because I mean, you know, as you probably know, it's the Jewish New Year today. I I didn't manage to get my kids to synagogue this morning, but I intend to get them there tomorrow. And my cousins in Israel, they they believe I'm in. I mean, I'm a confirmed atheist for, for the for the record. Um, they they ask me why I'm forcing my kids to uh, to go to synagogue. Why do I let them choose? My answer to them is that uh, if I don't take them to synagogue when they're kids, they won't be able to choose whether to be Jewish or not when they grow up. Well, I,
1: think uh, that's very, so- I think that's very good, and and um, uh, I uh, certainly enjoyed and learned a tremendous amount from going to Sunday school and and learning uh, about. Uh uh the sort of standard Protestant lore. I think that um, if we just take steps, not coercive steps, but nudging steps, to get the world's children to see other religions and the fact that some people are non-religious, like L, that I think a parent has a hard time saying, well, you're not going to sh- let my child see that. Well, well, why not? It's, it's, you're going to have to rethink how you tell your child about your own religion. But th- these are just facts about the world. There are all these other different kinds of people out there.
2: You know, the famous the famous Niels Bohr joke about the horseshoe above his door and someone says, Bohr, yeah. you know, sure you're a great physicist, you don't believe in this mumbo-jumbo. And he says, of course, I don't believe in it, but I'm told that it works anyway. Would that yeah. be a fair description of your uh, relationship to religious observance, as it were, observance or patterns or culture? Because I think, I mean, you're on record as saying, and I would tend to agree with you, that the, you know, the, the, B, the B minor mass or even the math, Matthew Passion preeminently is the greatest piece of music, you know, as it were. And... and uh, what, it's hard to ignore, isn't it, the fact that some of the most beautiful music is religiously inspired. There has to be an account of that, surely.
1: They are uh, some of the greatest works of art. They're they're deeply moving. They move me. Uh, uh, nothing shivers my timbers like hearing the uh, the uh, choir in, in one of the Oxford colleges at Eden Song, and the candlelight, and the uh, King James Version of the Bible being intoned with pearly, uh, plummy tones. It's it's just fantastic. It's the greatest show on earth. Um, and that's, I'd, I'd put it more respectfully. Yes, it is a great show, um, but it's a deeply moving occasion, and it's, it's good to be moved and to be... Uh, Encouraged to rethink what you're doing and what's important, really. Uh, so I don't, I, just, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I was going to say, you, you,
2: you feel, by contrast with many philosophers, to be quite grounded. And I should say, as I say this, that there are there questions beginning to come in, and we're going to come to them very shortly. But I just, as it were, the final one from me before we, we hand over to the QA. Your, your your own physical groundedness. I mean, as a sailor and as a you know, whittler, a sculptor, you know, so who makes things, uh, builds things. Uh, hopeless DIY myself, but apparently you can you can roof and and plaster and all this. Is that is that sense of groundedness and that sense of kind of the the the, the way that stuff works, the physical world, and in, does that help to ground your ideas in any sense, or is it a distraction from from the thinking? Does that question make sense? Oh, I think it does. In
1: fact, I mean, I think. Um, If I hadn't been been raised in a a family of, you know, uh, historians and English teachers uh, and humanists in general, people in the humanities, I probably would have been an engineer. But if I told my mother I wanted to be an engineer, I think she would have reacted in in horror, but not wisely. I think basically my mind is the mind of an engineer, I think. Uh, I want to know how things work. Uh, and also I've come to realize that some of the greatest ideas of the last 200 years have come from engineers. I mean, they're the ones that have been as revolutionary as anything. Having the hobby farm in Maine for 40 plus years uh, uh, kept me sane. Uh, uh, Nothing like uh, fixing a, broken uh, plough
0: to uh, uh, put you in touch with the concrete reality. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.